Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of STEM Speaks. I'm so excited to interview our guest today, Dr. Ray Wynn Grant, a large carnivore ecologist. We have not had any biological scientists um, on the show so far, so I'm really excited for Ray to share with us what she's working on, what she's doing, and how she got there. So, Ray, give us a little bit of background on how you entered into this field. Thanks, Camille. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. This is awesome. Um, So I'm definitely in a non-traditional field, um, even for being a natural scientist, um, doing the type of work that I do is considered non-traditional. And I got into it. Why is that? Sorry to interrupt, but that's an interesting fact. No, not at all. Sure. I mean, so a lot of research is done um, on human health, right? So often when we think of biologists, We think of people in the biomedical field. We think of doctors, even, um, and people who do different types of research to make improvements to human health um, and advances in the science that helps us understand human health and the body. And what we often don't think of are people like me who do work every day to save endangered species, right, to learn about the planet, ecosystems, how nature functions, and to create the science necessary to um, put different policies and protections in place to save species of plants and animals from extinction. So important. And so you're doing that now where? So I have been doing it mostly in school for many, many, many years. (laughs) I've done a lot of school. Not Um, easy to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't. Um, And then most recently, I've taken on a postdoctoral fellowship position at the American Museum of Natural History. And that's an important place to note because most people know of this museum in New York City because that's where you go to visit when you're a kid, has all the dinosaurs, all the amazing large animals, and it's really a tremendous place to visit. So most people think of the exhibits when they think of the Natural History Museum. And little do folks know that above the four floors of exhibits, there are four additional floors of um, laboratories and offices and research space for scientists like me where we're based. And from there, we get sent out all over the world to do field work, to study endangered species and places. That is really cool. And something I didn't even know until, I mean, I realized that you were working there and above the museum. Is that a common thing? It really is. Yeah. So uh, museums are awesome places for science education, which is, you know, the most important thing. But almost every natural history museum out there, and not just science museums, but art museums, history museums, often have separate spaces that they use for their research um, institute part of the um, part of the museum. So it's definitely not uncommon, but the public doesn't usually know. Which is very cool. If you are looking at a career in science or even curious about it, this is a great place. A museum is a great place to kind of explore that both 
at the exhibit level, but also trying to figure out what research they're doing, what their scientists are looking at, and where they're looking um, to expand in the in the space. So one thing that I thought you that you that you said was interesting is the non traditional versus the traditional and. I think it's really cool that in some of your research, you've kind of brought those two things together, right? So you're looking also at how humans affect some of these populations and ecosystems, correct? Yeah, that's totally right. I'm flattered that you even looked so far into my research to find that. Um, <laughs> but it's definitely true. So um, there are plenty of ecologists like me who want to study how the natural world works. And because of the particular species I study and the places that I study them, they're highly impacted by human activity um, and have been for hundreds of years. And so human beings and human behavior is actually a large part of what I'm researching. And it's mostly the human impact on um, these different species of large carnivores and what that means in the present in terms of protecting them and conserving them. Um, and what it means for the future and what we need to do to keep them around. Are we doing enough to keep them around? You know, in a lot of ways, yes. In a lot of ways, no. You know, it's really difficult in this line of work. Um, For a long time, I studied lions in parts of East Africa, and that's really, really tricky because even outside of human influence, uh, lion populations are very threatened by just habitat destruction that's driven by a lot of things, including the global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, I've been studying black bears in North America. And the good news there is that black bear populations are increasing. So it's a huge conservation success story, and we don't get a lot of conservation success stories. So it's really wonderful right now to be studying an animal that's doing better and better and better every single day. That is an awesome success story. And I want to hear more about studying lions. But before we go there, can let's go back. How did you get into this? How did you know you wanted to do this? How did you, you know, decide on this field of study? Oh, that's right. That was a question. Well, you know, um, again, in a super non-traditional way. So I grew up, I was a little kid in San Francisco, California, um, in my opinion, the best city in the world. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I had a family that exposed me. My parents exposed me and my younger brother to so many things, especially travel. We traveled a whole lot. Um, and I will say that I think I lived a childhood that was very different um, and really exposed compared to a lot of my peers. And I'm so fortunate for that. But almost all of our travel was urban, right? So we went to cities and cities and cities and cities and um, learned a lot about cities. I have this deep love that's ingrained in me for urban environments. Um, And so going into nature and the natural world wasn't necessarily something that we did as a family. And if I compare that to a lot of my peers who are wildlife ecologists, they grew up, you know, hiking and camping and boating and, you know, hunting and all of those things that got them into nature. So my exposure to nature was mostly through nature shows. So I loved to watch TV. I love, I, my parents wouldn't let us watch all kinds of TV. Like we couldn't watch junk. Um, so it was a lot of PBS. There was a lot of, you know, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, you know, National Geographic, those really educational networks. And I just got really hooked on nature shows. I loved them. And I wanted, I remember expressing early on, like, I want to host a nature show. That's what I wanted to do. And it's funny because, you know, being a kid or being an adolescent or even a teenager, I 
didn't have a consciousness that I was being exposed to science when watching these shows. I didn't, you know, there's no articulation on the shows that this is a type of science that's going on. Um, I essentially thought I was being entertained. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, essentially I was thinking, I want a career in entertainment. Um, But eventually when I got to college, um, I early on figured out that a pre-med track was not right for me. And I found environmental science um, in the environmental science department. And that definitely spoke to the type of biology that I wanted to do, right? So less about the human body, less about microbiology, you know, so what's going on in cells and at the cellular level, and more about looking at the entire organism as a whole and how it functions in the environment. And when I found environmental science, things got a little bit better. Not a lot better, because (laughs) I still hadn't been exposed to nature in that major way, right? So I was still learning about nature and the environment, like, from a textbook. Um, So I enjoyed it, but it was super abstract for me. And I was sitting in classes with folks who knew a lot, and they could read the textbook and relate it to things in their own life. And that was really, really different. So... um, What ended up really hooking me and finally getting me into the wildlife aspect of things was a wonderful study abroad experience that I had while in college. It was a wildlife management study abroad program that took me to the rural parts of southern Kenya, all the way in East Africa, to a study abroad program for a whole semester where we were camping outside and we were living with wildlife and all of our professors were black Kenyan um, wildlife biologists who grew up in that country and had been studying wildlife essentially their whole lives. And that was my first time camping and that was my first time hiking. And that was my first time in the outdoors and having an outdoor experience. And I was 20 years old. And after that, I was completely hooked. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And the path has been fairly linear since then. That or underscores a couple of really important points, right? One, you got to see it to to understand that you can be it, right? And even without you knowing it, these shows that you were exposed to open the aperture for you to even think about something in science, in nature. And so that's really cool. But then also, you know, stepping beyond the things that you are directly exposed to and the importance of exposing your children to things early, I think is really an important point. Um, And to the best of your ability, right? Maybe people can't travel as much, but they can go to a park and they can do hikes in their local community and they can expose their kids in ways that are fun and creative. Um, Because you really do open up their minds to things that they don't even realize and they're able to connect dots later. So that's really, really cool. Um, It is really cool. And I agree with you. I mean, you know, all the travel that I did with my parents and my family um, up until that point um, made me a a, someone who was unafraid of going to a new place. And and in a lot of ways, I was following in my parents' footsteps. So before I was ever born, when my parents were young and in the early parts of their relationship, they traveled to Kenya together, um, you know, like in the late 70s, early 80s. And so they had stories of being in Kenya before. So although I had never traveled there, I'd never been to Africa and this time I was going by myself, it almost felt like something that I 
was super excited to do like a place that I belonged already just because I had that family foundation. Yes, safe and, and comfortable enough for you to go. That that fearlessness that you're talking about is really important in any aspect, but particularly this one where there aren't a lot of people of color and uh, not a lot of women either. And so I think that's really cool about your journey is that you are trailblazing. You are one of very few black women doctors in this space. And I think that's amazing. Um, as well as you're also teaching your daughter to be outdoorsy and open to different cultures, wildlife, all of these things. And I have seen that firsthand. So I commend you for that and would love to hear how watching National Geographic's translated to actually doing work with Nat Geo, right? You did a project with them in 2016 that was really cool. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, Camille. I mean, it's honestly a dream come true because I can remember specific times in childhood, in young adulthood, where I would say, you know, one day I want to be a scientist with National Geographic. <laughs> and <laughs> that's essentially like a reality now. That's and what you've done. Pretty, yes. It's pretty incredible. So um, at the end of 2016, I had a wonderful opportunity to be a part of a large expedition that included about 50 people. So I was one of 50 that was funded by National Geographic and the Rainforest Trust. And it was an expedition to a rainforest in Madagascar. Now, Madagascar is an amazing, biodiverse, rich country. Um, ecologists, wildlife ecologists love it. It's really fascinating. But almost all of the rainforests, if not all of the rainforests, have been surveyed by biologists, right? So they're not surprise new rainforests that, you know, scientists have never stepped foot into. But in 2017, there was a young woman in Madagascar, a woman, a Malagasy woman um, from a local community close to the rainforest, who essentially discovered this forest, which sounds probably to anyone listening who has a concept of how difficult it is to find a new rainforest, they will think it's not true, but it's absolutely true. Um, this rainforest was very discreet and hard to see from satellite imagery. Um, it's at an extremely high elevation, which is rare for forests of that type. Um, and she got a tip from, you know, a local livestock herder and found it and then alerted some prominent conservation figures in Madagascar to say, hey, there's this place that might need protecting um, and no one's ever been to it. So National Geographic and the Rainforest Trust funded this huge expedition to get a lot of experts into that forest as rapidly as possible. So herpetologists and mammologists and primatologists and um, anthropologists and botanists all these different experts were brought in from the UK and from the United States and from all over Madagascar and from, you know, um, Puerto Rico and South America. I mean, all over to survey this rainforest. And I was there to help with, uh, um, with the larger mammals. So in that case, it was lemurs. Oh. Lemurs are a primate species that are endemic to Madagascar. So you can only find lemurs in Madagascar. And we were able to find a species of lemur called the ring-tailed lemur in this rainforest, which, and I'm going to sound like such a ecology nerd, <laughs> is a huge advancement to science because until this time, lemurs were not known to reside in this area of the country. Um, and they were not known to reside in 
wet or tropical rainforests at all. So we're actually expanding the world's understanding of lemur ecology, which is extremely, extremely major. So Mm -hmm. it was a huge investment to science. The herpetologists found new species of frogs. The botanists found over 45 new undescribed species of plants. Um, The small mammal folks found what might possibly be a new species of lemur altogether, which is incredible. The anthropologists found some ancient burial grounds of people in this rainforest that are being observed. It was just a tremendous advancement to science and also tremendous contribution to the history, the natural history of Madagascar for the people themselves. And it was all driven by um, someone from one of the local communities, which is incredible. So, you know, National Geographic funded this expedition, which made the science possible. And it's just been this incredible marriage of all these different groups and teams um, to do some really incredible work. And I was very fortunate to be a part of it. Oh, my gosh, that is just amazing to think that we are at a place where we are still discovering new rainforests, new species, new, I mean, that's kind of of insane, right? It's it's a science dream. It honestly is. It was amazing. I mean, that is definitely something you will carry with you. (laughs) Very cool. So trailblazing in the work that you're doing, but like I said earlier, trailblazing in being um, one of very few women of color in this space. Can you talk to me about the work you're doing to change that? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, like you've already said, I'm one of very few women of color in this space, you know, meaning biology, but refining it even more, meaning environmental science, refining it even more, you know, ecology and refining it even more wildlife ecology, refining it even more carnivore ecology. I'm arguably, you know, one of the only active researchers at the PhD level who's a black woman in carnivore ecology. And that's, terrible. (laughs) You know, it it makes me stand out and it makes me a very unique person, but it's really lonely and it's extremely unfortunate. You know, it's not like there is an interest from black women. It's that there have been so many barriers to all kinds of people of color to get into this field, um, which is a whole other conversation to be had. But, you know, to be more solution oriented, I have been very fortunate, especially in the last three years that I've been out of grad school to do a lot of work to engage, um, youth, especially from underrepresented groups in wildlife conservation. And some of that work is at the high school level. So being at the Natural History Museum in New York City, they have a wonderful variety of programs for New York youth to get engaged in research at the museum or to get experiences at the museum. And I help to lead one of those efforts where we actually take students, high school students, um, from under served and underrepresented backgrounds. And we bring them into the forest. We bring them actually for a week to some of the large forests in upstate New York, and we go camping for a full week and we expose them to wildlife research. You know, we're not dealing with lions and bears and lemurs, but we're dealing with, you know, turtles and snakes and different fish communities and birds. And we get them very hands-on with wildlife. We get them, you know, learning about different types of forestry techniques. And we take them out of, you know, their communities in Manhattan, the Bronx, and Brooklyn, and Queens, and into the forest. And for a lot of students, it completely changes their life. And they say, this is what I want to do forever. I'm hooked. And for a lot of students, it completely changes their life because they say, okay, yeah, I tried it. 
but I no. didn't like it that much. And <laughs> yeah. so now I am able to decide for myself that this isn't the career for me instead of having society not even give me the chance to make that decision. Um, and to me, either of those things is extremely rewarding, right? So whether yes. students go into this and follow me to be a conservation scientist or wildlife ecologist is great, or whether they're just educated enough with experience to say, no, I definitely want to be a lawyer. I definitely want to be a business person. But, but it I goes beyond had- that. It goes beyond that. The mere exposure means they're an ally in whatever line of work they are in or that they are understanding of that when it comes up on the ballot or when it's a policy decision to be made or when there's an opportunity to whatever or even just makes them a little more open to taking that camping trip with whoever invited them on it. Yeah, that's an amazing (laughs) opportunity, especially, like you said, for underserved and underrepresented groups that would have otherwise never seen a forest or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. maybe even balked at the opportunity to touch a turtle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I feel like I got kind of a late start. I went camping for the first time, hiking for the first time when I was 20, you know, they're able to do it when they're 15. And that's, that's a really big difference, you know, whether, again, whether they like it or they don't like it, at least they are able to kind of forge these skills and learn about this aspect of science um, at an age where they're still able to make these big decisions for themselves. So that's been a wonderful, wonderful um, thing that, you know, program that the museum has that I've participated in. And I've been so grateful because I learned so much from these students. And on top of that, there are a couple of different undergraduate programs that I've helped to work with that are specifically for black and brown um, undergraduates who already have an interest in conservation science. They've already expressed that this is what they want to do. And so with those groups, I do a lot of mentoring. I talk a lot about my process, my journey. I talk a lot about, um, you know, the different issues that I've faced being um, someone from a non-traditional background in conservation science and, you know, even a lot of gems about, you know, handling anxiety and mindfulness and self-care, you know, along this journey. It can be really tough to be in a career field where you're trying to save the planet, (laughs) right? So there's a lot of failures, it seems like. You can work really, really hard your entire career, say, on, you know, trying to save tigers from extinction and Every single year, there are fewer and fewer tigers, right, despite your trying. So there is a need for folks who go into this, especially people of color, to already have a very solid, you know, mindfulness practice and to be able to manage stress and anxiety really well because it's, it's really tough work. It's very selfless, mm-hmm. um, kind of underappreciated, thankless work. Yep. Um, and... You know, and we already have enough going on in our in our right. lives and in our and in our communities to deal with. And so, anyway, that's just something that I try to infuse in my mentorship is a lot of self care. That's so important in any field. Self care is essential because burnout happens, and it can happen in a really big way. And so, one, it's important that you are showing people that you know someone that looks like them can be in this space and and be doing extremely well in this space and that you're exposing people younger and younger to this field, to the opportunity to build a career in science beyond some of the more traditional fields and, you know, do things like go play with lions and tigers and bears (laughs) out in the wilderness. How cool is that? 
So before we wrap up, I would love to give people an opportunity to watch your work, connect with you, you know, hear your insights as you travel. Can you tell people a few ways to do that? Um, sure. Oh, my gosh. Well, I am doing my best to stay relevant on social media. <laughs> aren't we all? I have to say, aren't we all? And I have to say, I just get the best media when I'm doing field work, when I am active in the field, handling animals, you know, which is probably about 40% of my time. Which is so, so cool. If you follow me on social media, you will always know when I'm in the field because I'm posting the best videos and the best pictures, and it's really amazing. I'm handling bears, I'm handling lions, primates, everything. Um, and when I'm not in the field, I try to stay relevant by showing people how awesome lab and office work is as a scientist. <laughs> um, but I, sometimes I, you'll find me throwing in some pictures of my cute kid because she is learning about the natural world herself. She just and turned three. So adorable. the whole big green planet is really fascinating to her. So definitely Instagram is my preferred social media of the moment. Um, but I also have a really cool website that I've been working on. So it's just raywingrant.com. Um, and there is a way to contact me through the website. And I'm really good at following up on that type of contact. Um, so no matter who's out there, if you want advice, if you want to learn more, if you want me to come speak and, and share more of my story um, and more of my awesome videos, I'm happy to do that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I would love to just touch more folks. And I'm flattered to be a part of a cool program like yours, Camille, um, that highlights some of these like hidden figures like me. Yes, I'm so glad that you could join us. Wait, before I wrap up, tell us what that IAG account is. Oh, yeah. So all of my social media accounts are just my first and last name all smushed together. So it's Ray Wynn Grant, all one word, R-A-E-W-Y-N-N-G-R-A-N-T. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I do tweet a lot, but that's not as visual. Um, and my website is com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ray. I follow her on all of those things and you will get a treat, especially when she's in the field or sharing pictures of her daughter. Um, thank you for joining us today. I hope you learned something about biology and about conservation biology in particular. I hope that you will support these causes and you know help Ray save the world. Reach out to her and keep listening to the show. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you, Camille. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at CareerCentralOnline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.